CannabisRadio.com proudly presents the newest and greatest podcast in the galaxy, The Real Dirt with Chip Baker. Your insider industry connection to accurate and entertaining information about cannabis technology, production, cultivation, and everything in between. The Real Dirt with Chip Baker is a podcast series featuring the cannabis industry's expert pioneer growers, venture capitalists, lawyers, and dispensary owners, rolling joints and dropping knowledge about cannabis technology, production, cultivation, and everything in between. The future of legal cannabis has arrived, and we want to give you the real dirt with Chip Baker. Well, here we are with another episode of The Real Dirt with Chip Baker. On today's Dirt, we have Jordan Wellington from Presente Cedarburg, one of the leading law offices in the cannabis industry. Say hello, Jordan. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. <laughs> me and Jordan are longtime friends. We've done a lot of research together on the industry. He's helped me really uh, uh, gain some focus and understanding on the legal environment throughout the U.S. and specifically in Colorado. Why don't you introduce yourself, Jordan? Uh, hey, everybody. So uh, my name is Jordan Wellington. I am an attorney with the law firm Vicente Cedarberg, as Chip said. Uh, I focus most of my work there on uh, cannabis regulatory policy. And what that means in more layman's terms is that I uh, really spend my days uh, teaching uh, cannabis businesses how to operate in a compliant fashion and uh, spend the rest of my time teaching policymakers from really across the globe on how you regulate cannabis in a responsible manner. Since we've been friends, I've seen you go everywhere. You were just recently in Alaska. You've been uh, to numerous countries or have advised numerous countries. Uh, were you in Puerto Rico recently? Uh, I wasn't physically in Puerto Rico, but I have been talking to the folks that are working on regulations there. Right, 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 right. People from all over the world and country call you for advice on uh, cannabis regulation, how to write the laws, how to understand the laws, how to manipulate the laws. Is that what you well, do? Uh, not necessarily manipulate the laws. We'll, <laughs> we'll leave that to the people who kind of come in after the fact and, and work with businesses. Uh, you know, a lot of my work these days focuses on working with uh, either legislators, senators, or representatives from other states or elected officials from other countries, and then the regulatory agencies themselves. Um, you know, the Marijuana Enforcement Division here in Colorado, uh, the Department of Food and Agriculture in California, for example. And I meet with those folks and really talk to them about what we've seen in terms of best practices, both here in Colorado and, and developing really across the globe, on how you create an effective regulatory structure on, on what things do work, what things don't work, what are the things that have tripped us up here in Colorado, uh, and how we've kind of addressed some of the, the um, bumps in the road that we've seen as we've tried to uh, bring cannabis legalization into a 21st century economy. You know, one of the things that really impressed me about Colorado is how fast everything happened here. Legal medical cannabis started in 1997 in California, and for 10 years... Literally, there was litigation over there that, that, that wouldn't make it legal. But in just really a short period of time, Colorado seemed to like uh, 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 put it through the legislative process, vote it into law, decide how they were going to regulate it, create the rules, and make it really effective. Colorado is really the only effective economy in cannabis right now. I know it's going on in Oregon and Washington. Let's go over like a brief history of how it happened here. 
Sure. Well, you know, I mean, we're seeing things improve in Washington uh, and things are just starting. But uh, for sure, at this point, Colorado is really the the best functioning and most mature market for cannabis. It's interesting. You know, California and Colorado are very divergent right now. But if you're actually to look back historically, there are a lot of similar things that have occurred. And really, the the biggest differences are, are kind of just a couple of flashpoints. So uh, California moved forward in 1996 with a constitutional amendment protecting medical cannabis patients. Uh, Colorado moved forward in 2000, actually, with a constitutional amendment protecting medical cannabis patients. And both operated under this caregiver model where you would actually see these people cultivating at home and then selling to patients. It was not a storefront model like we're used to today. That continued really through the Bush administration, through the you know 2008 election. Um, and shortly after Obama was in office, there were uh, a variety of memorandums and policy documents issued by the Department of Justice that, you know, for without getting necessarily too deep into the weeds, basically said that this was not a prosecutorial uh, priority. Right. And and when that happened, that it was really early 2000s. That was really like 2008, 2009. Okay, so it, it uh, went on for a number of years, just like California. Did. Just like California. Right. Very, very, very much like California. And then very much like California as well. Once Obama got into the office, we started to see the, the commercialization of the industry in a different way. We started to see these storefronts pop up. And that's a lot of the enforcement action that's still going on in California today and in Colorado as well. In fact, um, you know, Andrew Livingston, um, who's an economist and researcher at Vicente Cedarburg likes to talk about these states together as market-driven states where the market came along before regulation did. Sure, right. Colorado and California. Colorado and California, yeah, right. exactly. Two big, two big cannabis-producing states for years. For years and years and years. But those states actually had a market, not just an illegal market, but storefronts before regulation came in. Right. And that's a huge, huge thing because what happened in both states is you had these storefronts come out. And and this is where the stories really diverge, I think, because in California, you saw some local regulation, some attempts at local regulation, but quite frankly, a, a failure at the state level to ever regulate. Right. Up, right. Up until absolutely. really this past they summer. They looked the other way ago. for years. Forever. Colorado was a different situation. Colorado, there was some local regulation. But then in 2010, uh, during the legislative session, it was a really historic and landmark moment. And this is when things completely changed. Uh, House Bill 1284 was passed, and that regulated the industry for the first time. It was a actual state regulatory structure, licensing, uh, background checks, inventory management, operational guidelines, the the basics, the, the very elementary basics of what we know today as the Colorado regulatory structure were put into place during this historic time when this bill was passed. That's really where things, I mean, amongst other areas, where things really diverge in terms of Colorado and California. And this moment was critical because this led to legalization. The general public became much more um, accustomed to regulated cannabis and storefronts and seeing the regulated model function, which paved the way to legalization. When did you come to Colorado? I moved here in July of 2012. 2012. So the movement had already started to happen here, right? 2010. That's that's when dispensaries became regulated and legal. And you come here in 2012. Uh, start to work with the local environment. What what brought you here? Uh, I actually have family here. Uh, okay. My stepbrother Josh Pollock owns Rosenberg's Bagels. Um, plug plug best bagels. Best, in best bagels Denver. Uh, 
really, I would say, in the entire country outside of the New York City area. Uh, east of the Mississippi, I think that could be a, a completely reasonable statement. Uh, the point is, is he has fantastic right. bagels. Um, and so, uh, you know, I had some family out here. My wife and I were just simply disillusioned with life on the East Coast uh, and quit our jobs. Uh, I was working for the uh, Office of Legislative Services in New Jersey doing bill drafting and research. And we just kind of quit our jobs and ran away. Um, right. You, you came to Colorado to be in part of the cannabis industry, though, specifically. No, actually, no. absolutely not. Uh, really? I came to Colorado to work in politics. I had been working in uh, economic development, renewable energy, transportation, um, those kinds of things, really kind of fundamental, really economic oriented areas of public policy in New Jersey. And um, what ended up happening was I just didn't want to live there anymore. And right. so I moved out to Colorado. Uh, I was obviously aware the election was happening, but uh, it was really interested in just trying to create a better life for my family. And uh, so I actually ended up falling completely backwards into all of this. Right. But you, you came from a public policy place, which no one is hard for people to believe that cannabis was going to enter this type of political atmosphere such a backroom situation. So you get here in Colorado, semi-legal cannabis, and you go to work for Vicente Cedarburg. No. No. <laughs> that was actually uh, quite quite farther down the story, but it, it, okay. it's a very interesting story. So I moved out to Colorado in 2012, and the election was going on, Okay, um, you know, the second Obama election. And uh, I did what everybody who moves to a new area that works to work in public policy and politics does is I, I got volunteer jobs on campaigns. I knocked on doors. I volunteered on congressional campaigns. I, I did anything and everything I could for free uh, and up to $10 an hour. I was I was really raking in it at the time, uh, doing everything I could to just develop my connections and, and most importantly, not have to move back to New Jersey. That was really the primary. Yeah, after you move here, it's hard to move back. Yeah, uh, the notion that we would ever have to leave was not something that we were keen on. So I ended up getting a job as an aide in the House Majority Office in the General Assembly with some folks that I know and had met through uh, all of these volunteer work that I did. And I was actually uh, essentially a $400 a week aide. I, I, I did not get paid for overtime and I worked quite a bit of it. Um, but it was volunteer work and I, I love public policy. So it was a really tremendous opportunity. So you got to know a lot of people in in the, the network. I did. And I was working on gun control legislation, uh, civil unions legislation. A lot of people don't realize Colorado didn't have civil unions until, until 2012. Um, so I got to work on some very, very interesting areas of public policy. Um, and then the governor's task force report uh, passed. And so I guess for those who, those who don't know the basic story of legalization in Colorado, um, Amendment 64 was a ballot initiative that passed in November of 2012 and, and basically was the uh, impetus behind the uh, legalization structure that we have here. It forced the legislature to kind of move forward with regulations of cannabis for the first time. And that was a, a truly historic campaign. And it was actually run by a lot of the folks I work with now at Vicente Cedarburg, as well as Mason Tavert and Steve Fox, who are some of the originators of the Safer messaging, which is a you know, critical component in Colorado's evolution that we can we can kind of get to maybe down the line. Yeah, I hope to get those guys on the show in the future. That's yeah, absolutely. I mean, that what, what they did for cannabis uh, and change it into a new paradigm, you know, a lot of drug policy reform is, you know, people shouldn't go to jail for cannabis, social justice reform. And, and, and that stuff is absolutely important. But, uh, you know, it, it, it falls short in certain ways where it says cannabis is bad, but not bad enough that people should go to jail. 
What Safer says is it flips that on its head and says cannabis is safer than alcohol. Why are we making these people criminals? It doesn't come from a place of cannabis is bad. It, it starts with cannabis is safer. And so I think that that was really important. Yeah, that was an incredible way to uh, change people's mentalities on it. That's because that's really what needed to happen first. Absolutely. Mentality changed. Yeah. And so and so when you had that mentality change, you have this passage of this ballot initiative in 2012. And uh, what happens is Governor Hickenlooper at that time creates uh, really what was the first cannabis regulatory working group in Colorado, uh, the governor's task force. Christian Cederberg, uh, one of the founding partners of the firm, was on uh, the task force along with people really from all over the place. And they put together this giant 160 plus page report talking about the ways in which Colorado was going to implement legalization. That report was finalized at around the end of February, I would say, early March of 2012. And it came to the legislature and it became the legislature's job to implement legalization. And this is the part of the story where I, I actually join in. You know, up until this point, it had been a lot of other people that I now get to work with that have kind of been handling all of this and doing this for for many years. A lot of them, people like Brian Vicente, who had been working on this for for, you know, eight eight years or something like that before even legalization. And so this report goes to the legislature and the legislature created something that was called the Joint Select Committee, joint between the House and the Senate, not a, a joint that you would smoke. And uh, the same type of same time. Well, they shared it among each other. They, they did share the responsibility amongst each other. But but unfortunately, there was not cannabis passed amongst them, at least to my knowledge. And so these legislators go through the entire task force report and come up with their recommendations about whether uh, these things that the, the task force said that they were thought were a good idea. Did the legislature agree? And should they put in be put into a bill? Should they be amended slightly or should they be removed entirely? Uh, and I will I will never forget the day uh, changed my life forever. Uh, Ian Silveri, who's a good friend of mine and now is uh, actually has left public service, but he was the legislative director at the time for uh, Mark Ferrandino, the Speaker of the House. And he called me into his office and explained what was going on with the task force report. And I had read about it in the Denver Post. And he said, OK, he's like, good. He's like, well, you're going to be in charge of this now. He's like, you're going to be the staffer that's assigned to uh, staff the Joint Select Committee. I'm going to introduce you to Dan Pabone, the Assistant Majority Leader, who uh, was really kind of the point person at the legislature at the time for this this kind of issue. And uh, I was going to go work with them. And I actually um, very foolishly begged and pleaded with my friend to uh, go do something else. I think I specifically stated we had a bill that's going to give 200,000 people in the state health care. Uh, is there something else I can work on? Um, after a series of four-letter words, uh, and we're both from New Jersey, so that's a, a lot of our communication, he proceeded to tell me that uh, this was not a democracy, although we, we were literally in the state capitol at the time, uh, <laughs> and that I was going to go do what he, he told me to do. And I was a $400 a week aide, and he was a legislative director, so I did exactly what he told me to do uh, and ended up not only getting to staff the Joint Select Committee and, and really was the sole staffer from the legislature assigned it. There was no one from you know, Senate majority or uh, Senate minority or House minority. So it was really just me kind of handling everything. Uh, I not only ended up getting to work on that, but I carried the bills created from that uh, Joint Select Committee, House Bill 1317, House Bill 1318, and Senate Bill 283 through both the House and the Senate. Um, I wasn't even a staffer in the Senate, but uh, when the big regulatory bills and tax bills had moved over there, they kind of drafted me onto their team, and I, I moved over to the Senate and worked on getting those bills passed. And so I ended up uh, without even realizing it at the time, getting essentially a front row seat uh, and getting to really roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty a little bit on on how the Colorado General Assembly implemented legalization. And we got those bills passed. And I, I actually, this is one of my favorite stories. I always 
uh, tell policy nerds, most people don't understand what this means. So unless you actually work at a legislative office or have worked, this probably won't matter to you. But uh, we got all three bills implementing the legalization of cannabis through the Colorado General Assembly in 12 working days. Um, which is unheard of. Uh, absolutely. Um, but of. even more importantly than that, we didn't go to conference committee, um, which almost every single major piece of legislation goes, goes to a conference right. committee, right? The House passes one version, the Senate passes another version, and then they go argue about, you know, how they're going to compromise those two versions. We actually got the House to concur with the Senate amendments, um, which is very, very rare on anything, let alone a major piece of policy. And I, I remember going up to Representative Pabone at the end and being like, oh, my God, we just passed this bill. It was so exciting. You know, let's let's close the session and go celebrate. And he was like, what do you mean? He's like, we absolutely have to go to conference committee. We have to go to conference committee. And I said, no, we don't. We're all good. And he's like, he didn't believe me. He's like, I'm going to go check with all the stakeholders. And I was like, for sure. Like, I don't I don't want to have a problem. Like, let's make sure we get it done right. And he came back to me about a couple hours later and was like, I can't believe it. Like, you're right. We don't need to go to conference committee. Everyone's fine with it. Let's just pass the bill. Um, so the bill passes and um, so cannabis brings people together is the moral of the story here. Uh, sure. Right. 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 Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, it's bipartisan support. People from all sides of the issue agreed on how to deal with it. Uh, well, you know, you had a very, very unique situation with cannabis. Um, not passing something wasn't really an option. Right. Uh, okay. The Constitution said you had to that the Department of Revenue was going to adopt regulations by July 1, 2013. Right, right, right. They had to do it. That's how they eventually made it happen in California, too, right? They, they said they had to do it. They forced it. Yeah, right. we can get into a little bit of how California, but essentially right. you have a situation where the public forces the legislator's hand. And by forcing them to do something, you kind of force them to come together and pass something. And we got fantastic ideas from both sides of the aisle. Um, we also got terrible ideas from both sides of the aisle. Um, there were a lot of different things along the way. And, and maybe one day we'll do a future podcast where I'll tell some war stories about all of this stuff. But <laughs> um, there, there were some really amazing policies. Uh, Senator Uliberry, uh, who is a former ACLU person, really did some amazing work around suitability requirements um, and things of that nature. So, you know, we're talking a, a lot of different people bringing different ideas to the table and, um, you know, helping to influence where the policy went. So let's break right there. We'll get back to firing it up with the expert on The Real Dirt with Chip Baker after this. Do you want to get in on the booming cannabis industry? With new Frontier Data, we give industry insiders the power of big data analytics to help navigate this rapidly growing and changing landscape. New Frontier's tools help you make critical decisions based on the facts. Our industry analyst reports reveal the best opportunities. Our custom research engagements deliver answers to the most difficult questions. And our cutting-edge big data platform, Equio, puts real-time information and answers you need right at your fingertips. Go to www.equio.io and sign up for your free membership today. That's EQU. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now about a game for your phone gonna make you say, wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Grow the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire grows large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is Himping, that's the point. Download and play while you light yourself a joint. The business of cannabis should be no crime. Hemp Inc. is even hot proved by the man who run high times. Oh yeah! 
Get it on Android and I and iOS today. Marijuana Llama out. Got to tend to me on crops, you know. Money don't make itself. Hemp Inc. While the feds and state are doing their dance, you still need to transact business and manage your cash. Go professional and let your customers pay with PayQuick. They pay you and they earn rewards points. PayQuick connects to your bank account for free and secures all of your transactions. And with PayQuick, you can pay your producers and processors for free. Plus, it pays to have it because it makes depositing your cash safe and so easy. No cops, no crooks, just compliance and comfort, knowing you have your cannabis business in check with PayQuick. PayQuick, the safe and easy way to pay. P-A-Y-Q-W-I-C-K dot com. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com from dabs to chibas, sativas to indicas, we roll out a whole concentrate of fresh new content every week. It's like going from the greenhouse to the dispensary. CannabisRadio.com Time to get all the insider cannabis industry secrets straight from the mouths of the OG weed pioneers on The Real Dirt with Chip Baker. Real Dirt with Chip Baker. I got Jordan Wellington here. This is The Real Dirt. Who's got the herb? Personal musical interlude here. <laughs> Who's got the herb? Who's got the herb? Can't you hear it? You know, I'm a great musician. My bathroom in my head <laughs> all right so we were, we were talking about like how it all happened yeah right uh we've had the history the development the legislation one of the reasons i think colorado's model was so successful is because it came through the legislative body and the legislative process um in california it was a voter-sponsored initiative people hate that people love it people hate it right i i, I have been really uh Excited to see it happen here, and honestly, that's why I moved to Colorado is because it was happening so quickly, and it was happening here, where in California, it was stalled, and it still hasn't quite happened there. And we're back. This is The Real Dirt with Chip Baker and Jordan Wellington. Today, we're talking about how the legal policies developed with California and Colorado cannabis, specifically Colorado. Jordan was a uh, instrument in helping all of this happen on the legislative side. And we're we're talking about the rules. Yeah. So once the pieces of legislation passed uh, those those particular bills during the 2013 legislative session, everything had to go to rulemaking. It had to go for the you know nitty gritty details to be worked out. Um, what are the great- so rulemakings? They're 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 the the back room. People get together and say, Hey, I want this. I want this. There's there's no voting. There's no. Correct. There's no voting. So there, there's no voting. So we've gone through the legislative process. Now right. this is. I'm not saying a backroom deal, but it's a group of individuals that get together and debate the best way to do it. Yeah. So so it, from a legal structure perspective, you have kind of three levels 
And this works really well in cannabis for an example. So you have the constitutional level, and that's Amendment 64, right? It basically protects people's right to possess cannabis, says the, there will be licenses and licensed businesses, and then basically tells the government to go sort it out with some very high-level, you-should-regulate-advertising-type stuff. Then the statutes come in and provide, let's not even say the meat on the bones, that's really just the skeleton at that point, and they start adding in kind of Wait, you know, you're going to we're going to regulate things this way. These are the suitability requirements. These are what would disqualify you from getting a license, right? right. Is if you felony here or if you what are how do you get disqualified from a license? It, it, basically, it's criminal background criminal stuff background for the most stuff. part and then residency requirements. Mm -hmm. So if you were to say so child resistant packaging is a great example, right? Amendment 64 doesn't mention child resistant packaging. It just says protect minors. So the legislature then takes that direction and says, okay, we're going to do child-resistant packaging. We're going to reference the federal standard, which is uh, 16 CFR 1700.20, or the Poison Prevention Packaging Act. Right, absolutely. It was then the Marijuana Enforcement Division's job, the regulator's job, in the rulemaking process to figure out what that exactly means, what would and wouldn't be considered sufficient for child-resistant packaging purposes, Right. So we're, we, we move into this rulemaking phase, and I think that, you know, how you describe it is, is very common. Um, you find that it's, it's a very lobbyist-driven process, and it's not n normally as inclusive a process uh, as something like a legislative process. This is the most important process to some degree. The laws as they're passed can be vague, just like you said on the tamper-resistant packaging, right? This is, this is how it actually happens. This is uh, what's going on in California right now. Um, they're deciding how the regulations are going to be put in place. This is also something that's ever-changing here in Colorado. And when we started all this in 2013, 14, it's different today. Uh, yeah, the regulations have evolved. So there's been a lot of iterations. Uh, the first iteration, which was for the July 1 deadline that we mentioned earlier for finishing the, the administrative rules, was 64 pages, which was nice, Amendment 64. We had a little bit of synergy. Uh, today, they're around 220, 230 Because people pages. develop problems over time. Ideas and, didn't work. Exactly. And so, you know, I think that one of the great misnomers about what's gone on here is the Colorado model. People talk about it all the time. They refer to the Colorado model, the Colorado model for cannabis. And there is this assumption that that is our regulatory structure. And it's not. The Colorado model actually has nothing to do with the words on the page. The folks involved will all tell you the same thing. It was the process by which we got there. Cannabis regulation is not cookie cutter, and it shouldn't be. It needs to be specifically designed to each unique environment, whether you're state talking by state, country state by state. Uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands has unique issues. I've been working down there with their Chamber of Commerce. The U.S. Virgin Islands has unique issues in comparison to Jamaica, which has unique issues in comparison to Colorado, which Colorado has unique issues in comparison to California. And so instead of saying that the Colorado regulations themselves are the model, what we like to talk about is how we create policy here. Um, and that is the working group model. So instead of kind of the backroom descriptions that you were given, uh, the Marijuana Enforcement Division hosts working groups. There's actually several this week. Uh, the week that we're recording it, to deal with some of the changes in the law that came from this past uh, legislative session. And basically, the Marijuana Enforcement Division, they're not town hall meetings. They invite particular participants who represent specific aspects of stakeholders that are critical to this issue. And then they have everyone argue about it. And the room goes around and they, they, they have a, usually some type of proposed rule. And uh, people will debate that rule, how it should work, what the language should be. 
you know, most of the time, not is this or is this not a good policy unless there is wiggle room. A lot of times the marijuana enforcement division has to do something and it becomes a question of how, not if. Right, right. And that's critical, right? And so you have these conversations about how to do it. And then, yes, you do have this a little bit more, uh, you know, autocratic as opposed to democratic situation where people aren't voting. Uh, the folks at the Marijuana Enforcement Division do listen to everyone's arguments and then go back and write the rules as they think would work best. Sure. Um, right. But at the same time, it isn't this backroom process and it isn't this series of released drafts that have uh, internal negotiations. There is a very public process. Any member of the public is welcome to attend working group meetings. And there isn't a, even is a time for public comment at the end of those meetings. And so the public is very, very engaged. And really the ideas and thoughts come from all over the place. And we found that that is the best way to make policy because you don't know where the best ideas are coming from. We didn't know at the Marijuana Enforcement Division. After the legislature, I went to go work at the Marijuana Enforcement Division during the initial rulemaking, uh, the first two sets of working groups after legalization. And we didn't know that we actually had PhDs with backgrounds in chemistry in the industry, people with, uh, you know, masters in biosciences and things like that. Uh, and But by having the working group process, we were able to pull these folks out of the woodwork and find people who could really participate. Uh, professors from uh, DU and CU on marketing were critical to the advertising regulations. Those folks may not have been in the process, but for me hunting them down and offering them seats on the working groups. Right. So at, at, through Cultivate Colorado, we sell uh, – uh, pesticides, fertilizers, potting soils, and the pesticide issue is one of the things that we come across constantly. On a monthly basis, the list of pesticides change. On a weekly basis, on a daily basis, sometimes a notice of a pesticide being out of regulation or in regulation. So this is exactly what you're talking about. As time goes, people realize certain uh, uh, rules or regulations don't work, and they actively change them. This is how we keep learning. This is how it keeps moving. Yeah, the evolution. The evolution policy. of it all. Because um, we can't just write it one day and say, hey, cannabis is legal today. Go sell it. Yeah. Right. That doesn't work. Doesn't work right. at all. Right. Doesn't um, work at all. And, and edibles are a great story about that. But let, let's talk about pesticides because pesticides are fascinating. Pesticides and cannabis are actually one of the great misnomers from a, a legal and policy perspective. Most people believe that, uh, you know, people are using bad pesticides on cannabis. When you read something right. in the Denver Post, right. Right. it says there's a recall. People think, oh, my God, they're doing heinous, dangerous things because it says, you know, business X Unregistered. use banned right. pesticide right. on cannabis. Unregulated well, pesticide. Pesticides is essentially banking. That's one of the things that people don't realize. People understand, at least those in the industry understand the banking issue, that the federal government regulates banking. Cannabis is illegal on a federal level. So... You can't access banking or there are banking issues with cannabis and legalized cannabis. Right. Well, this the federal government the regulates pesticides, right? not the states for the most part. California is kind of a weird exception. Let's leave them off to the side. But for the most part, pesticides are regulated at the federal level. What pesticide can go on what crop at what time and in what intervals is, a, is an EPA an FDA issue, right. not a state A labeling issue. issue. It has to go on the package. It has to be specific the, per crop, per pesticide, per application. Use. Exactly. And those labels are approved by the EPA, not the Colorado Department of Agriculture. And so when there is a recall that says banned pesticide, that's not really what's happening for the most part. I mean, sometimes people maybe are doing bad things. But what they are doing is they are using pesticides 
that are commonly applied to many crops across the country. All the food we eat. But not specifically labeled for cannabis. Right. And so we don't have the science and data that shows cannabis uptake and retention levels due to specific chemicals. Right. They haven't allowed the regulations. They haven't allowed the research. And and the studies have not been done. Right. Because you can't legally say it's for cannabis, correct? Exactly. Right. Uh, The EPA is now uh, listening to something called 24C, special local needs permits, where they won't change the label, but they will say it's kind of like it is on the label in Colorado. But the only people that can do that are the manufacturers of the pesticide. Uh, and despite cannabis being, uh, you know, a, a, a great economic opportunity with lots of jobs and tax revenues coming in, right. it certainly is not wheat. And yeah, it certainly it's not is industrial not industrial agriculture. It's not. So it's not the it's still a boutique crop. Uh, it's a boutique crop. Uh, what the pesticide folks will say is there's the big eight, which is like corn and soy and all of that kind of stuff. That's going to move Monsanto, the people who own the patents on this, to do the research to get the labels changed. Right. Cannabis is just not enough of a market to begin with. So Absolutely. There's billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars in alfalfa, right? But they estimate the current legal cannabis industry at... You know, we had a billion dollars in sales in Colorado right. in 2015. Right. Right. We're, not, we're not that. On so, a world economy, it's still small. Exactly. To me and you, a billion dollars is a lot. Right, right, right. Quite a bit. That would set you and mom and Bean up for a while. It would set the family up quite well, for sure. Um, And so, you know, what you have is this situation where people aren't, you know, the the story out there, the common understanding, this idea that people are spraying banned pesticides. What people think is like, that's something that was banned by the federal government. No, no, no. no. It's It's harmful or dangerous. And all of this stuff. Yeah, right. And we just need to do more science on... Can you spray this particular thing on cannabis or not? Right now, we don't know. And if you can spray it on cannabis, when in the cultivation cycle can you spray it? Because that's really the most important thing is if you apply a pesticide for the most part early enough, it will be out of the plant by the time it's ready for human consumption. Right. They just had to do the research to develop that. And the research hasn't been allowed yet on cannabis for the pesticides. And, And the question is when... Right. It's not just like how long do you going to harvest it? It's then what is it done? Right. Hops are treated very, very differently when you brew beer than drying and curing cannabis flowers. Absolutely. Right. So it's it's not even just the plant itself. It has to do with uh, consumption methodologies, which complicate things in cannabis, because we have not just consumption of raw flour by both smoking and vaporization, which are slightly different and somewhat similar. You've got inhalation studies. Right. You've got combustion points and all kinds of things to work. Temperatures change the chemical composition of almost everything. Everything. Right. right? But then you've got extraction. Right. Right. Concentrates. Interesting. Are we talking about butane, CO2? Are we talking about butter? Are we talking about rosin? Are we talking about water hash? And then what are you doing with that concentrate? Are you then smoking or vaporizing it? Because it's not just concentrating THC or CBD. It also concentrates the other components as well. Exactly. But how much is in there? Does an extraction method of CO2 or butane bring along residual pesticides in a way that water won't? What, and are you then Nobody smoking knows that? It's just theoretical. It's right all theoretical. They're questions that we don't have the answer to. Are, are you and are you are you then making an edible out of it? Right? A whole nother question. And then all of a sudden you're not smoking it. It's going through your gastrointestinal tract, an entirely different method of consumption. Right. And so these are questions that we don't have the answer to in cannabis. And so all the states that have legalized have permitted a very, 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 very small amount of the pesticides regularly commercially available in this country. 
Right. It's all stuff for just general agriculture, herbal extracts, botanical extracts. Exactly. The salts, maybe some potassium salts. And so when you see this kind of stuff, when you see a banned pesticide, it's banned for cannabis, not banned right. in the United right. States. And it's not really banned for cannabis. People think DDT when it's, they think banned. Exactly. Right. It's a bit of a misnomer. So, you know, the newspapers are, are doing their best to cover it. And it's not it's not a question of blaming. It's a it's a it's a question of nuance. And nuance is really like the the you know the terrain where people who work on this from a policy perspective and the lawyers and the business owners understand, but the rest of the country they don't need to know the nuance and the like the absolute weeds of the policy around cannabis and pesticides. Right, they just want to smoke weed, and they want it to be safe. They want it to be safe, absolutely. And it's and it's safer in the regulated market than it's ever been in the black market. Absolutely. And hopefully we will continue to move towards a space of greater safety because the federal government will legalize cannabis. There will be pesticides approved for cannabis once we have that data. And then you can start getting into what is and isn't organic and you can start getting into organic labeling and all the kinds of things that we would expect from a commercial product produced in the United States. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So you just brought up an excellent point, Jordan, about concentrates in cannabis and uh, concentrates in edibles. Um, people aren't aware that mostly they'll take, make a hashish or a concentrate of some sort, an extract of cannabis with THC and CBD, and then take that, uh, dissolve it in some sort of butter or fat to put in the quote-unquote edible or ganja food. Right. And this has been an underrated industry. Uh, it, it's becoming huge here in Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even going back in Colorado, we consider even your traditional cannabis butter, you know, to be a concentrate. It's a concentrated in, in a sense because it's, it's the most similar. Right. I mean, what you were doing, you know, in, in your own kitchen when you were trying to make weed butter to make brownies 20 years ago, you're making your concentrate. Home, you're, right. you're extracting cannabinoids from the cannabis itself right just to take the leaf of the cannabis and put it in butter and then to make ganja butter it, right and then strain it out i mean in and right. of itself you that's that, a concentrate that it is in a lot of ways and, and from a regulatory perspective it might as well be uh within the process and so that that is what we consider it to be and, and then and then from there you you get to the edibles right and, i never really thought about it that way that concentrates were edibles not just that you put concentrates in edibles you put a concentrate in an edible so that you can eat it. Sure. Right? And you can activate concentrates so that you can eat them directly. And then it is an edible, right? An activated concentrate is an edible in a sense. Right. You, you mean like the, the crystalline CBD or the, the clear product? The well, it's all about THC. decarboxylation. Right. You heat it up. Right? So if you take any type of hash oil and you heat it to the point of decarboxylation but not combustion or vaporization, you have now made an edible. Now you can eat it. Because your body can digest it. Right. Right, because a chemical change has gone through this deep. Right. I'm not suggesting that that's something you should or shouldn't do. I'm simply saying that, like, right. it is right. in very much the same thing. And when you're eating an edible, you are consuming uh, extracted cannabinoids in the same way that you are when you're vaporizing it. It's just, it's just you're taking it from the raw plant and you're consuming it either – you know, uh, through inhalation or through digestion. It's just it's just one or the other. And so, you know, those have become one of the most fervent grounds for regulation, one of the areas of of most scrutiny by regulators. 
um, concentrates due to the fact that it really is some complex manufacturing. It is. And there are, there are employee safety issues that must be addressed. Um, I never really thought about the employees. What, what, how are the employees at risk? In the same way they would be in any other industry and in any other facility. Um, there's fire codes and building codes uh, and electrical sure, codes. Sure, Standard stuff. Standard yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right. And, and Colorado's regulations that, that even do pay specific attention to concentrate production are mostly nothing more than references to the fire codes and building codes. Um, uh, you know, I, I drafted uh, 605 uh, in the initial one that came out uh, in 2013, and, and most of what it does is simply say that these businesses have to be compliant with the building code and the fire code and the electrical code. Most of the requirements aren't unrealistic. No. Uh, the question is where you classify it. That becomes right. that becomes what really matters. The fire code says that, you know, if you do this, that, or the other thing, then you have to have this kind of building. Right. A fireproof um, or explosion proof or exactly. room. And that generally has to deal with, uh, you know, what type of things you have and, and regularly the, almost the amount of flammable materials that I'm you have. Sure, sure. So we have at, the same. Certain quantities, the the more flammable material have, the more fire resistance. So many gallons or so many pounds. Do you right. need sprinkler systems? Right. Do right. you need blast proof? evacuation? Uh, you know, spark proof, um, you know, equipment. Do you need, do you need all the electrical equipment? All that stuff is driven um, by the International Fire Code, the International Building Code, and the International Electrical Code, which are um, then adopted by different and cannabis farmers and extractors have never had to follow any of these codes. So it's become difficult for for people to to step into this new world, really. Absolutely, especially when you've invested in a facility where you weren't required to. What, what my experience is, is that most businessmen will comply with whatever regulations that they have to to operate. But what becomes most challenging is when you make your investment and then you have to readjust because the regulations change. So if you're not required to do something and then you are, that, uh, you know, that period of reinvestment can be very challenging for businesses. Right. Absolutely. They uh, numerous people were put out of the market on the early years, right? Not uh, uh, following the right regulations or, or <clears throat> they weren't even following regulations. There weren't any regulations in place. They started business, and then the regulations came. They weren't able to comply, or it was, it was just too much money for them to comply. Right, and right. that's and edibles are such a good story behind that um, because those regulations have changed so much dramatically over time. The quality of them changed so much. You know, several years ago, the dosing wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> they had no idea how many milligrams were in there, and now it's heavily you know, governed, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't here at the time, but I, I've heard stories like other people. Oh, um, Chibachus, I don't know if we could say that name, but Chibachus, they used to say unpredictably strong was, was, their, was, their, was their logo, unpredictably strong. In medical, you know, when things first came around, even under the first regulated system, there weren't potency caps or, or dosing restrictions. It was just, you know, they were very loosely regulated. Um, there were some basic sanitary requirements. Just um, like they food, any other food. No, actually, they weren't considered food. They were exempted from the definition of food and not uh, given so not even made in commercial food handling kitchens, oversight or, uh, and not yeah, handling yeah, yeah. in commercial kitchens. Uh, Denver came forward really as the first ones to try to push that uh, they should be treated with normal food handling oversight. And we've seen, uh, you know, a lot of movement in that direction over the years. But they were, they were you know, not unregulated, but uh, very loosely regulated. Uh, over time, that's really changed. Uh, in 2012, you have Amendment 64 pass. And during the adoption of those, uh, both the statutes 
and then the uh, regulations that came after that we've talked about, there's been a lot of change in terms of what they've done with edibles. So first they put a potency cap in retail of 100 milligrams. They required servings uh, and said that your serving can be no more than 10 milligrams. And then they imposed mandatory testing. And those were just the first set of regulations that came down for edibles. What's been particularly challenging for edible manufacturers has been the, the continued evolution of the regulations. So it started there. Right. But then the next thing was the uh, debates around uh, not just serving size, but really overconsumption, intentional overconsumption, um, not accidental ingestion where someone doesn't mean to consume cannabis, but uh, intending to consume cannabis, but unfortunately having too much. And so that really led to the debate about segmentation and the new set of regulations. Uh, we call it like Kit Katting, where you know you can still define your own serving of up to 10 milligrams, and you can still sell multi-serving edibles. Uh, still capped at 100 on the retail market. But you have to be able to say how much is a particular segment. So if you're going to sell, uh, let's say, a 100-milligram edible with 10-milligram servings, you need to have 10 easy separable parts. So I, as a consumer, can say, okay, snap this piece off 10 milligrams. Right, and this has been really great for the industry, honestly. I've seen so much innovation associated with this. And now you can get 5-milligram dosing, 10-milligram dosing, 20-milligram dosing, uh, 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 individual, like, mints or individual caramels. You know, it, it's been great for the industry. Absolutely. I think if you're given a problem, businesses can innovate, right? That's one of the great things about this country. People uh, bitch about regulations all the time, but they're often for health and human safety issues just like this. Yeah. I, I wish we had more data. You know, unfortunately, we don't have a ton of data about which particular regulation has resulted in what particular outcome. Sure. Um, but we will, I mean, over time, hopefully social science researchers and we'll get better data behind public policy. Right now, it's a lot of, uh, you know, people trying to do their best and, and reacting to things that they see in the market. Uh, but that was really just the first step, right? So now there's all of this segmentation or kit catting um, of, of products. And as you say, it certainly makes it easier for consumers. Um, and then the next step was uh, this marking and stamping debate, which was very interesting from last summer. And that was the idea where uh, the child-resistant packaging was supposed to prevent accidental child ingestion. But that's not enough. But there were concerns about accidental ingestion by adults, products outside of their packaging where people wouldn't be able to tell if that was cannabis. Sure, this may have happened to my mother a few years ago. Uh, right, and it's a very disconcerting experience. I think if, if you want to consume cannabis, that's fine, but you should uh, know. Yeah, absolutely. It. Yeah, now they label it clearly THC on the edible. Right. And right. so there was a big debate uh, in the legislature about this piece of legislation and then uh, a huge debate in working groups about it, uh, which were very, very interesting. And I, you know, I think the data remains to be seen about the effectiveness of this and whether it's necessary. Um, but, you know, right now we really have that laboratory of democracy phase that, um, you know, people always like to talk about where you're going to have different states try different policies and hopefully we'll be able to see what's effective. So now there are products that are considered uh, impracticable to stamp and then practicable to stamp. And those that are practicable receive a diamond shape with a THC uh, and an exclamation point, which you could read as either caution or enthusiasm. Right. Like like the Lucky's edibles. Those are an example of that. Yes. Right? Um, uh, yes. Uh, there, are, there are several that have them on the market already uh, with this diamond shape uh, and exclamation point on them. And so... You know, uh, we'll see how effective that is of a policy. But that was another change that these businesses had to go to. And now we're reaching what should be 
almost funny this summer. Uh, the next debate, uh, there was another piece of legislation passed, and it prohibits all edibles in the shapes of humans, animals, and fruit. This is a, a, a to keep it out of child uh, as candy to keep it not looking like candy. Yeah, it's it's a child it's a child resistant measure in theory to to make things not attractive to children or defining what might be attractive to children. Uh, at this point, the regulations have prohibited any shapes that are attractive to children, but it's very hard to define that in terms of what it means from a legal perspective to cite a business and fine a business. You know, I'm not sure that I'm familiar with any candies that are in the shape of humans. What are what are what are we what am I missing here? Well, you know, you might have like some person shaped gummy bears and things like that, or not gummy sure, I mean, bears, just but currently, I'm just wondering humans, like how I they guess. how they decided to put humans on this well, list. I, I think what's interesting about that is, is first of all, humans are animals, so it's tautological. Uh, right. Okay. Great. Great point. Uh, but but also, uh, what we've really started to talk about, and there's some very conversations: are robots human shaped? Hmm. Okay. Are androids human-shaped? Because uh, they are technically human-shaped robots. So I think androids might be out. Robots that are very boxy and distinctive, you know, maybe they're in. I that's Those are the conversations the Marijuana Enforcement Division is going to have to have this summer. <laughs> um, you know, what about, what about a hand or a foot? Is that human-shaped? It's not the shape of a whole human. It's the shape of a part, part of, of a human. Part of a human, correct. Right. Fascinating. Um, Animals, you know, I'm gonna. I'd have seven hand candies, please, and one foot. Not human shaped. Yeah, unhuman shaped um, animal parts, right. please. And then fruits are totally not allowed, but vegetables unmentioned. So, is broccoli shaped gummies permissible? Uh, and this is the whole. Can I? Is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? Right. Here's and the now, debate. now, now we have all kinds of problems. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, and then finally, uh, you know. Uh, Brought up by by someone that I know because kids uh, don't want to eat vegetables. This is the perfect thing, right? Oh. I, I, I guess I don't. You know, the internal debates on passing this statute, I wasn't in on, but it's certainly an interesting way to look at it. I, you know, I don't really think things should be shaped in a way that are attractive to children. But you, when you think about yeah, when you not. prohibit an animal shape it, or a fruit shape, it leads to all kinds of legal questions about well, what does that mean? Because there are a group of individuals that are required to go around the state and find site and stop businesses from doing things that are against a set of legal rules. And so now a group of uh, regulatory enforcement officers are going to have to ensure that things aren't a specific shape, which means regulations around what a shape means have to be developed, which leads to obviously all of these kind of very interesting questions. Uh, my favorite so far has been, is a circle-shaped object – that is both orange in color and flavor, shaped like an orange, or does it require a stem and or leaf? So these are the kinds of esoteric questions that I don't think anyone ever forced a regulatory agency to ask. Right. But those questions are now going to be debated in working groups this summer. Uh, this is going to create by, a square industry, obviously. Yeah, very square. Um, so, you know... I, at the end of the day, hopefully this will lead to a better industry, a stronger industry, but it also leads to tremendous costs that are absorbed by businesses and product design and redesign, packaging design and redesign. Um, you know, and it's important yeah, to recognize that. It's expensive that and as costly. Well. It, it that's is. for sure. Um, so, you know, it should be a very, you know, I mean, it's fun to make light of it and it certainly is going to be amusing in a certain way. Um, but, you know, there are costs that come along with all of this. Those costs are then borne by consumers. And hopefully what will come out of this is, you know, good policy 
And I think everyone agrees and is on the same page that, you know, nobody wants cannabis products to be attractive to children. The producers certainly don't want it. Um, and the rest of the stakeholders don't want it. It's just very complicated to define that. And the focus on cannabis has led to some really interesting conversations. They, they put alcohol in chocolate. They put vitamins in gummy form. Kids die from eating Tide packets. These are all important regulatory questions. Um, we're just having some of the most industry ones. How do we get there? Most interesting ones, you know, in cannabis, because there's so much focus on, on how it's on this issue today. Um, so we'll see. It's all, all brand new. Most certainly. Well, let's break there again. It's The Real Dirt. Chip Baker, Jordan Wellington. We'll get back to firing it up with the expert on The Real Dirt with Chip Baker after this. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Equio, New Frontier's cutting-edge, big data platform, puts the information and answers you need right at your fingertips in real time to help you more effectively run your cannabis business. Go to www.equio.io to sign up for your free membership today. Again, that's www.equio.io. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be, the Vuber way. Do you want to get in on the booming cannabis industry? With New Frontier Data, we give industry insiders the power of big data analytics to help navigate this rapidly growing and changing landscape. New Frontier's tools help you make critical decisions based on the facts. Our industry analyst reports reveal the best opportunities, our custom research engagements deliver answers to the most difficult questions, and our cutting-edge big data platform, Equio, puts real-time information and answers you need right at your fingertips. Go to www.equio.io and sign up for your free membership today. That's eqio.io.io to sign up now. The power of real-time big data is now in your hands. Run with New Frontier and let us help you conquer the wild. Keep your cannabis cravings under control. Feed your mind with CannabisRadio.com. Time to get all the insider cannabis industry secrets straight from the mouths of the OG weed pioneers on The Real Dirt with Chip Baker. And we're back. Yeah. This is the real dirt. How you doing over there, Jordan? I'm fine, thank I'm you. Doing, doing good, doing good. 
All right, where were we, Jordan? We were speaking of uh, the edible industry. Yeah, we were and talking about the kind of evolution of the edible, edible regulations in Colorado. Right, right. You know, it's it's not just Colorado anymore. It's uh, Colorado, Oregon, Washington. They all have active legal sales. Nevada. Alaska um, has adult use as well. Adult, adult sales, adult use. No, I don't think they have businesses open yet, but they, the right. rate, they're coming. They're on the way, on Close. the way. And, and the laws have passed. Right. So it, it, it's coming. What there's Ohio, right? Didn't they just pass up? Uh, Ohio passed a bill and there will be a ballot initiative, I believe in Ohio. Uh, so there's a lot coming on the ballot in November. Everybody has to remember to vote uh, in all states, but especially in states uh, where it's on the ballot. Make sure you get all your friends to vote as well. Uh, there will be legalization on the ballot in California, Nevada, Arizona, Maine. Adult use. And Massachusetts. Adult use. Not just medical. Adult use. Adult use. Uh, as well as medical ballot initiatives uh, in Missouri, uh, Florida, Arkansas, Ohio, and possibly others. And I'm not sure if 100% of the ones I've listed have qualified for the ballot, uh, but there are at least campaigns running in those states, and I believe most of them will. Uh, and, and quite a few of them have already qualified for the ballot. Um, but again, that's, uh, you know, you can find all that information from Marijuana Policy Project uh, and other great groups like Drug Policy Alliance that are, uh, you know, really working to change all of these laws. And, and you should definitely donate money to them as well. Yeah, good good point. Uh, they only do the work for us when they can afford it. And it takes our contributions to make people like Marijuana Policy Project, uh, Cannabis Action Network. Absolutely. I mean, these organizations need help. They're fighting on multiple fronts. Uh, you know, and they're fighting for everyone's rights, rights not to be a criminal, uh, which quite, which matter a lot. So, uh, you know, hopefully we will see those initiatives pass uh, and regulation really start to be adopted. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, growth in medical bills also passed by legislatures uh, and markets opening up in other states. You know, you mentioned Nevada. Nevada has a, a functioning medical cannabis market with uh, cultivators, manufacturers, testing labs and dispensaries all operating uh, multiple other states along on the East Coast. Massachusetts is uh, very slow coming out, but it would be a, a really great, uh, you know, hopefully close to operational East Coast outpost uh, with legalization. Right. Uh, Massachusetts is a huge cannabis uh, consuming area for years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Rhode Island, we've seen, uh, you know, a lot of progress. Marijuana Policy Project has, has uh, you know, really helped advance legislation there. Nothing's passed, but they've made a lot of progress. Uh, Marijuana Policy Projects has also been working with, uh, you know, all of our allies as well. Up in uh, Vermont, uh, you know, Andrew Livingston and I had an opportunity to go out there and work with some of the folks there, Matt Simon and some amazing people that are trying to, um, you know, pass legalization. And that uh, they came close. Unfortunately, it didn't pass by, uh, you know, a vote, a vote in the House. But, um, you know, that would have been the first state to legalize cannabis through the legislature, which would have been a, you know, huge progress as well. So, you know, we expect uh, a lot of states to be moving forward. California, obviously, a massive market. Uh, everyone expects the Adult Use of Marijuana Huge. Act to pass. Um, and, you know, that really, you know, could really help change the landscape if Nevada changes. Uh, you know, a lot of people we go to Las Vegas. haven't mentioned Illinois. Uh, Illinois has a medical cannabis market. Medical cannabis. There you go. Um, you know, that's coming along. Uh, Arizona also has a medical cannabis market. 
New Mexico has a medical cannabis market that's also evolving. Right. Uh, Important, just smaller. It's a smaller segment. Uh, smaller. What you see, and, and Andrew Livingston, to plug a, a future podcast, will uh, you know be on the real dirt, and you know he really is an expert in all of these areas and can sure. explain you know the dynamics of this. But basically, you know, you see a lot of these medical markets controlled by uh, limitations on doctors and limitations on uh, conditions. And so you don't have a huge percent of the population consuming cannabis through the regulated market. Uh, you really see that uh, population transition from the black market to the regulated market uh, once you pass adult use. And so, you know, from a from a market perspective, you know, the numbers are just uh, very different. California and, and a few states otherwise. But, you know, the details of that, I think, is is really his domain. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I, my, my point was this just spreading quickly. It's uh, it's not just a few states any longer. It's 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 almost everywhere. Right, uh, twenty six, twenty eight states or something are passing have some type of active type of cannabis regulation. Yeah, and it also depends on what you count. Uh, whether you consider CBD regulation and how you look right, at the CBD right. market. So you know it it is it is one way or another growing at a very rapid pace, um, and it's very exciting because. You know, we're also seeing movement in other countries. Spain has had uh, a lot of movement. They already have cannabis clubs there. But there's a move to pass uh, regulations on cultivations. You know, Spain is actually uh, Colorado, or at least Denver, Colorado, is, you know, mirror opposite in a lot of ways. They have uh, hmm. permitted public uh, consumption. They have permitted social venues in a lot right. of ways. Sure. There's just no legal way for anyone to buy it or grow it or cure it or process it or anything right whereas right. in denver we have regulated cultivation <laughs> processing <laughs> manufacturing but not testing and distribution but god forbid anyone went to a, a concert and smoked a joint that would be illegal oh no that is really the biggest gap in in the situation here is is public consumption because it is i mean it's something you do in a crowd something you do with your friends you know and it's still like forced legally in private residence or private situations. Yeah. And hopefully there will be uh, actually something on the ballot as well in Denver this right. November. Uh, we're working on collecting signatures right now. Uh, there's a social use campaign, uh, which would be a, a neighborhood pilot program um, that would people would get to vote in Denver, whether we should try to uh, regulate social consumption uh, through approval of neighborhood associations and things of that nature. Uh, Denver being the Amsterdam of the U.S. would be pretty incredible. Well, you yeah. have to you have to ask. You know, do you want it to look like Amsterdam? Will should there be distribution here? There would just be uh, bring your own cannabis because the state law only allows licensees to sell cannabis in the state legally. Uh, sure, good and point. right, right. It's illegal to consume cannabis on the property of a dispensary, so you could never have, have it until on the state law changes. These would all be bring your own cannabis. Uh, type situations. But but really, you know, hopefully what would happen is a combination of new places and new businesses would be created. And then a certain number of limited uh, existing businesses would also be able to, in specific areas under specific guidelines, permit the use of cannabis, you know, the right. Colorado Clean Indoor Air Act, for example, and things of that nature. So, you know, hopefully the idea is that it would be, you know, new businesses would be created and then in certain limited businesses, it would be incorporated. Uh, one of the things I always feel like is, you know, when social use of cannabis is regulated in Colorado, I would much rather see it, uh, you know, brought into the existing fabric of culture and society as opposed to, absolutely, uh, such you know, culture. separate venues created. 
Yeah, it seems like if they have that, keep it with the dispensaries or could change the law to some degree to where you could have like a consumption area associated with the dispensary. You've already gone through some of the things like they checked your ID. They made sure that you're, you know, uh, 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 over 21. You've purchased it, you know, from the facility. It just seems natural that you should be able to consume it there as well. You've already gone through their process. Well, but if you look at liquor stores and bars, those are actually different licenses, right? So maybe, you know, that's oh, another sure. model. Just additional to license, absolutely. Well, well, you would have your liquor store license, which could be a dispensary, and you could allow, so you could allow consumption on the site of a dispensary. That would be one policy option. Another policy option is, you know, if you were to be able to sell it, you could maybe restrict it more like a bar, right? At a bar, you don't buy a whole bottle of, of tequila. You, you know, you buy it almost like one serving at a time, if you will. Right. So it's just... And, uh, few, and few bars also sell uh, alcohol to go. I know in some states that is right. happens, but... And that's all questions for regulation, right? And, and some states... time. And some states permit it and some, uh, you know, localities permit it in other places. And those are the things that need to be worked out. And, and this initiative wouldn't address, you know, those kinds of things. Those would really be handled by the city council uh, subsequent to the, you know, people saying, hey, we, we would like to have regulated venues. Right, right, right. It has to has to come from the top down. So to agree. The future of cannabis public consumption. Are there any other states that are talking about this and their their current laws? I mean, Nevada seems like they'd have to to think about this, just thinking about the mentality of it there. Yeah, Alaska does. Alaska. Uh, Alaska has something coming online. Um, we expect to see things in other states. I would assume uh, Oregon, which has been very forward thinking on policy to uh, come come forward with some things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's interesting. It's not necessarily addressed in every initiative. There are uh, a, the uh, Adult Use of Marijuana Act in California will create um, kind of like tasting room almost style situations. I believe uh, under some permissive, but they also prohibit the consumption of alcohol and cannabis together in the uh, in these places in the initiative. So, you know, those are still uh, you know really interesting conversations that need to be had over time. All right, Jordan, I'm going to ask you a difficult question here. Not too difficult, but I'm going to ask you to peer in your crystal ball. Pull your crystal ball out. You have it. So gaze. Yeah. I got it. I'm looking. Ball. Five years from now, what's what's happening in cannabis? Um. You know, I would hope to see legalization at the federal level. Um, you know, that mo that might that most likely won't mean that cannabis is legal in every state across the country. That might take some time longer than that. But I would expect to see movement where the federal government, uh, you know, permits states to regulate cannabis on some level. Um, you know, hopefully descheduling, um, you know, or at least schedule three or lower. Uh, but preferably, uh, you know, the descheduling of cannabis. Um, We'll see a lot of movement around medical research, I believe, um, CBDs, but not just CBD, other other cannabinoids as well. And so, you know, hopefully we'll see lots and lots of development and fervent growth in those areas. I think that we'll start to see a lot of development in terms of uh, extraction techniques uh, and isolation of different, uh, you know, components of the plant. You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting things going on around terpenes and things of that nature. You know, hemp, industrial hemp, a huge potential area of All growth. over the U.S., right. Um, you know, and then we'll see, you know, the how the interstate markets start to develop. You know, can cannabis grown in different states be shipped to other states? Right now, every state's an isolated market. Um, you know, right. five years from now, there. that might be the time where people start talking about interstate. Um, you know, it might come sooner, come sooner it might come later. 
Uh, and eventually, hopefully, you know, evolution on the international level, changing of international treaties and things like that. You know, we're already seeing movement in uh, Jamaica and Costa oh, yeah. Rica. Jamaican herb mine. Um, you know, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot, a lot of movement. There's a cannabis licensing authority down there. You know, the Council on Responsible Cannabis Regulation just helped, uh, you know, put together a tour for uh, the cannabis licensing authority down there. And we got to meet with them at our office. Uh, um, and they're inter- they're dealing with some import herb come back. Well, they were just regulators and and, and policymakers. <laughs> they, but uh, you know, there was uh, you know some really interesting conversations. You know, including about uh, you know issues around around black markets and exportation. And they have a medical cannabis law. So there's a lot of evolution that I think we'll see on the international side as well. You know, Spain seems to uh, be the first domino in Europe to fall, and then what will come thereafter. Your prediction to summarize, we, we hope to see the uh, uh, the scheduling change, scheduling change in five years, hopefully to three. A scheduling change at the federal level, increased growth, at least of medical and hopefully adult use um, on the state level. And then, uh, you know, hopefully CBD. development on the uh, CBD, uh, absolutely medical and pharmaceutical research, um, you know, will come hemp. along. Uh, hemp, industrialization of hemp, uh, you know, hempcrete, plastics. All of these new commodities that uh, people are trying to produce with hemp. I think hemp creates one of the best things for hemp because it's a locally produced commodity. They can grow the hemp in the area. They're producing hemp um, concrete in the same areas. Concrete has to be made locally. It can't be shipped, right? It's a perfect union, right? Hemp Crete is a lighter product. It's engineered structurally just as stronger, stronger, right? I really see huge movement with hemp Crete. And uh, animal feeds associated with hemp, um, uh, um, uh, uh, silage-type products, fermented-type products for animal feed. I think both of those are incredible avenues for hemp to come in the future for sure. We probably don't really even know at this point. We don't. So much innovation's coming. What the newest thing is going to come. So five years from now, hopefully we see a lot of growth. I see no reason uh, to be pessimistic. But uh, Yeah, five years, I'm going to call you up and be like, dude, here, let's remember when we did this. Listen to this. Your predictions came true. Nostra <laughs> Wellington. Awesome. Great, man. Hey, I'm wondering, you know, an interesting thing I ask everybody is the terminology. Like cannabis industry is developing its own terminology. And, and most of the people I talk to come from a direct either touching the plant or touching of the equipment, they're hydroponic equipment producers, indoor horticultural equipment producers, ganja growers. Do you guys have any special terminology that the the general world might not know about in talking or dealing with cannabis, the law, regulations? I, we tend to really deal with all of the different types of people that touch the plant, so we end up with that same kind of industry terminology, I guess, that other people do. Uh, you know, I never referred to things as like flower and trim and extract and like specific types of extract before I got really involved in the industry because, you know, from a consumer perspective, it was irrelevant. You know, it was all just pot. So, so the, the, the industry terms have moved over to you. Oh, cuttings, babies, uh, trim. You need a common language. Sure. Both. I mean, you need it for contracts. I need, I mean, I don't deal with that stuff, but you need it for all the different, the policy areas, right? You need to understand it. There's an average market rate in Colorado. The excise tax, the the the, the wholesale tax on production on cannabis, 
is determined by an average market rate because there's so many vertically integrated businesses that you you don't have arm's length transactions at all times. And so there's this for every pound of cannabis that moves, you have to pay 15% of this determined average market rate. Sure, right. And every six months, it's, it's changes. changes. But the difference between bud and trim, those are huge on the market. Absolutely, right. So there are two different rates. So what is bud and what is trim are, you know, a huge, huge important conversation that policymakers and regulators need to understand now where... You know, three years ago, your average, you know, tax guy in the Department of Revenue didn't need to know the difference. It was all weed. Ta- it was all weed, right? Leaf, right. Well, well trim, it wasn't taxed, bud, you know. Right. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't taxed in that way. And now they need to know. And there's a huge commercial difference between the two. So, you know, those regulations have to be drafted appropriately because you can't have trim being taxed at $1,800 a pound, right? Yeah, there you it's, go. Right. it's like $300 a pound cannabis culture we're coming into it we're changing the world it's being brought into the light it is being brought in the light wow it's been an awesome conversation jordan i'm sure it's it's raised several questions with me today on future uh, podcast episodes uh, during the break we've had a couple conversations uh, en- enjoyed the conversation um thanks and i hope you come back uh, it was a great being here all right this is the real dirt chip baker jordan wellington let's roll another one up This has been The Real Dirt with Chip Baker. I'd like to thank all of our guests for participating in this fun project. Thanks for sharing your stories and bringing your weed. Also, thanks to Cultivate Colorado, providing all of your hydroponic and horticultural equipment needs throughout Denver and the surrounding galaxies. This has been The Real Dirt, a smoking roaches production. Hell yeah. Let me give a shout out to my homeboys and girls. That'd be Lisa, Willow, David, Chris. Thanks, y'all, for putting it together today. Also want to thank all my guests. Man, without you, it couldn't be possible. Stay dirty, my friends. expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.